God, now as we look to your word, we pray that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit says through it. We pray you'd help us to listen attentively. God, we pray you would help us to listen submissively. We pray you would help us to listen believingly in faith. Help us to listen worshipfully. God, help us to listen in the manner that would please you. Help us to listen in the, all the ways that are fitting for actually hearing the words of you, the living God who made us. God, thank you for these words. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we're starting a short series that aims to answer the question, what is man? What is man? Who are we? And what are we? Why are we? And today, there are, is a lot we're facing that opposes and undermines the biblical view of man. And I would suggest that almost nothing is more damaging than giving people a false sense of who they really are. There's so much sorrow and sin and suffering that, that grows out of a false sense of self and others. And we need biblical anthropology badly. A biblical doctrine of mankind. E- even if you have a biblical view of man already, if you are going to hang on to it today, you need to tighten your grip on it and elevate your understanding of it. And, and you need to love it. You need to delight in how God made you more than you do. So I'm going to take the next few weeks to try and tell you the truth about who you are as a human being. I want to show you this not only to help you identifying the errors that are prevailing around us, both, both blatant and subtle, about who man is, but, but also then so when you're tempted with a false and unbiblical view of yourself, that you would think, there's no way I'm going for that because the truth about who I am is so much better. So before uh, we start going verse by verse through another book of the Bible, the next book will be Ecclesiastes, Uh, We're going to take first the next few weeks to work through some passages in the beginning of the Bible that will answer this question for us. What is man? So if you haven't already, please open your Bibles to the first chapter of the first book, Genesis 1. And if you are following the little outline printed on the bulletin, I'll tell you up front, we won't get through all that today. So don't, you know, become anxious about that. Uh, We'll have to move some of that to next week's sermon. Okay, the most important thing for you to know about humanity, for a biblical view of man, is to know and understand the first thing the Bible says about us. Man is created in God's image. And if you truly embrace and understand what that means, it should affect everything about how you live and think and relate to others. And it should astound you, like David did in Psalm 8. Uh, It should make you say with wonder, what is man that God would honor me like this? And in that vein, consider first how God's making man in his image was the crown of all creation. That's our first main point. The crown of creation. 
God's image in man. So God made the world in six days, and he saved the best for last. His grand finale in creation was this. Look at verse 26 in your Bibles. God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So the way the creation of man is is described here, it signaled how special man is in, in comparison with how everything else was described that God made before this. So previous days of creation sound like this. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let there be an expanse, the sky, and God made the expanse. God said, let the waters be gathered, let the land appear, and it was so. God said, let let the earth sprout plants, each according to its kind, and it was so. Let there be lights in the heavens, and it was so. Let the waters swarm with creatures, let birds fly above the earth. So God created the sea creatures and every winged bird according to their kinds. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. And it was so. And, but then that repetitive rhythm that we became so familiar with through the first five days of creation, it's all of a sudden interrupted. When we hear something new, that pattern stops when God summons a special counsel within himself. God says within himself, let us make man in our image. God's made all kinds of plants, each according to their kind, all kinds of animals, each according to their kind, and now God will make a creature that is according to his likeness. And in the next verse, again, the pattern of previous creation days is broken. We don't just read next, and it was so. We aren't just told in a very matter-of-fact manner, and God made man. No, instead, Scripture breaks out in song or poetry in verse 27. Look, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, I hope you can see that in the formatting of your Bible, that that it's set apart. It's not just more narrative, normal continuation of the history. This is poetry. This is song. When God made man in his image, the story of creation became a musical. Uh, This part was too good just to say in normal prose. It had to be lyrics. It, It was a very moving, soaring high point of all God's creating work. And so scripture started to sing right here. And it's about you and me. This is how God made us, the crown of creation. There is no higher honor or blessing that God could have given man than to make men and women in his image and likeness. He gave mankind a dignity and a glory that was unsurpassed by anything else in all creation. And just think about what is glorious in creation. The heavens declare the glories of God, but not like man does. Uh, You think about majestic mountain ranges and coastlines with dramatic cliffs, the Grand Canyon, Niagara Falls, the Milky Way. All these things are glorious, but they are not where you look in creation to see the likeness of God. None of them are God's image. 
human beings are. Now, most of the time in the Old Testament, it speaks about images of gods. It it talks about carved statues of idols, images of gods. God forbade Israel from doing that in language, actually, that resonates with Genesis 1. Exodus 20, verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness, you hear Genesis 1, of anything in creation to bow down to it. And that wasn't just for false gods. God said, you shall not even make a carved image of me for use of worshiping me and pointing to me. And why not? Well, in part because God had already made images for himself in the world, likenesses of himself that could point to him and and represent his presence. That was us. Carved statues can't tell the truth about the living God. Carved images can't hear, see, act, move, speak, relate, love, bless, judge. But you can. God says, you're my image. So don't make images of me. I already did that. If you want to see what I'm like, look at each other. Look in the mirror. Watch how you and they love and bless and exercise dominion. That's my likeness. That, that was God's intention in making man. Uh, to, to be made in God's image means we were made to be visible representations of the invisible God. To be made according to God's likeness means we were made to be like God in many important ways. And again, that's, that's only true about man. Out of everything else in all creation, that's where God's glory shines most brightly. The likeness of God is seen. And that truth was sealed by God in the most amazing way. 2,000 years ago, God himself personally entered into his creation. And how did he come? Not as a mountain range, but as a man. One like us. That, that is how God-like God made us. A human nature was specifically fashioned by God to be suitable for the incarnation of His Son. He, he made man in His likeness so that the fullest possible revelation of God that there could be in creation would be through a man. Through His incarnate Son, Jesus. He he made mankind in His image with the incarnation of His Son in mind. He he designed human nature to, to be capable of being united to the person of God the Son. Or His image that much. So any answer to the question, what is man, that doesn't take that into account doesn't take the incarnation of God the Son into our nature. That's aiming far too low in your estimation of how God made man. The implications of our being made in God's image are gigantic. So many implications. So far-reaching. And for starters, we can say that you just can't understand who man is. You can't understand how you are, who you are. Except entirely with reference to God. Any understanding of yourself or other people that you might have that's not completely in reference to God is way off base. You are not thinking about yourself rightly. And so you cannot live rightly. 
You cannot live well. You cannot live happily if you're not thinking about yourself radically in reference to God. You are His image. And the same is true for how you think about other people, too. All other people. The unborn, the elderly, the annoying, even your enemies. God's image, everyone. Parents, your children are made in God's image. Children, your parents are made in God's image. Your siblings, your spouses. If you aren't treating them like they are God's image, then you are mistreating them. In God's sight. First Peter 2.17 says, Honor everyone. And we, we hear that command and we might think, that's ridiculous. You and I both know some people who are pretty dishonorable. Scripture says honor everyone? Everyone? Yes, because all people bear the image of God, even if in corrupted ways. The, the image of God has been marred in sinful man, but has not been totally erased in any man. And so it is right to honor everyone. Why? Because God is worthy of honor, is he not? And all people bear his, his image. And, and that's what's at stake in the way that you treat people. It, when you dishonor other people, you're not just dishonoring them, you're also dishonoring the one, in a sense, whose image they bear. Now think about this. If people want to dishonor some leader or person, what do they do? They dishonor their image. They throw darts at a picture of them. They graffiti a mural of the person. They, they burn the person in effigy. They tear down a statue of the person. If you want to dishonor God, find the image of God in the world and dishonor that. Other people. When you speak sinfully against a person, it's like you are throwing darts at a picture of God. It may be a kind of a messed up picture of God, but it is an image of God. You do not want to do that. James chapter 3 says, With our speech we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. We shouldn't sing nice worship songs to God and then, and then go speak sinfully to or about an image of Him later. That ought not be so. We must learn to think about ourselves and others radically in reference to God as ones made in God's image. And fully embracing this truth. I want to press this truth deep into your bones. Fully embrace this truth. You were made in God's image. It is both liberating and binding. It's liberating because it frees us from the pressure to prove ourselves. Gone is the need to strive to prove that we have value or worth. There, that, that there is something worth honoring about us. In light of Genesis 1, you can just stop that. You can lay aside the, the proud and self-defeating pursuit of, of establishing your own specialness apart from God by just abiding in this truth. You were made in the image of God. What incredible honor you have. You don't have to prove there's something special about you by amassing wealth, by being better than others at your job or school, by having lots of affirmation on social media, 
or by identifying as part of some oppressed group. You don't need power or prestige or victim status to be something special. You were all made in the image of God. And I'll warn you, all attempts to, to ground your specialness in something other than God in His image is going to come crashing down in the end. It's building a house of cards that won't stand. The truth is better. God made you in His image. Some don't want, though, to embrace this liberating identity as an image bearer because it also, in a sense, is binding. It binds us completely to God. It makes us recognize we're uh, bound to give Him all that we are. And He has the right to do whatever He pleases with us. Do you remember this? That Jesus taught us to think that way about the image of God in man. Uh, One time, someone tried to trap Jesus by baiting him to preach a sermon about paying taxes. Right? Uh, I mean, Jesus can't win that one with the people, right? That's a trap, except Jesus did, like, like he always does. Te- they said, teacher, is it right for us to pay all this money in taxes? Got him. Jesus said, bring me a coin. Now tell me whose likeness is on this coin. Caesar, very good. Okay, there's your answer. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God. You see what Jesus was saying? Give to Caesar that which bears his image. This, This coin, pay your taxes. But give to God that which bears his image. Your very self. Give yourselves to God entirely. All you have and are and do, you are his image. That, that high dignity comes with a very high responsibility that we are to render ourselves completely to God. We, we, are, we owe ourselves to him twice over because he made us and he made us in his image. If you're a Christian, you owe yourself to God three times over because he also bought you with the blood of his son. Now go deeper with me in thinking about this, what, what it means and entails that God made man in his image. Here, here's our second main point, aspects of God's image in man. Aspects of God's image in man. Now when we think about this idea in Genesis 1, when we see how it's picked up and developed in the rest of Scripture, I think we can boil the idea down to two broad perspectives. The being made in God's image means God made man to reflect his character and rule his creation. Reflection and rule. God made man to be a mirror and a vice regent. But, but many Christians today also add, and Christians through history have explained God's image actually as one step behind that as those like natural Faculties and capacities that, that would enable a man to reflect God or rule on his behalf. Things like the ability to reason or the ability to make choices as a moral agent or the ability to love or the ability to appreciate beauty. All, all the capacities needed to know and walk with God. And, and I think that's a good perspective too, though it doesn't rise as directly from the words of Scripture. So, uh, if you wanted to, we, we could add a third aspect of God's image in man to what I just said and, and what's on your bulletin outline, that 
in addition to a calling to rule and a character to reflect, you can also think of, of man's capacities that enable him to rule and reflect as an aspect of God's image in man. And, and namely, what capacities? Every capacity of human nature that would enable the Son of God to take on our nature and fully reveal God's character. And the capacities that would enable the Son of God to take on our nature and rule over the earth for God through our nature. Now, God's intention, of course, in making man is that, that we would use these um, limited God-like capacities. N- none of our capacities are like God infinitely as He has them, but these limited analogs of, of God-like capacities to use them in ways that, that are like God. So, so we wouldn't just reflect God's powers, but we would reflect His character, reflect His glory. So, so what does that mean? What's the take home there? To know how you should live as God's image, you must know what God's character is, what His glory is like. You, you have to know and understand who God is, to know and understand who you are and who you are to be. So here in Genesis 1, what, what do we see about God? He is an almighty creator. He freely and generously blesses. He is always good. That word good comes up repeatedly in the creation narrative. Everything God makes and does is called good. So God made man to be little reflections of his goodness in how they create and rule and bless others. Another very important scripture written at the same time as Genesis. Remember, Genesis through Deuteronomy is is one literary unit written by Moses, the law of Moses. So so another one right, right in there. The same literary context, Exodus 34, important for helping us understand God's goodness and glory and character. Moses asked, do you remember, please show me your glory. And God said, I will. I'll make all my goodness pass before you. Proclaim my name before you. And so God did, God proclaimed, I am the Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, abounding in faithfulness, forgiving sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. So God made you to show the world that He is like that. To to be visible representations of that divine goodness. Merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, forgiving, but just. Now, to use different words, when when Ephesians describes how our salvation in Christ actually renews God's image in us, starts to scrub away the marring of, of God's image that sin brought about in us, the Spirit does that for those who are saved in Christ. And, and Ephesians describes that as being created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's another way to think about this. That's the reflection of God's character that the Spirit forms in us. Righteousness and holiness. You pursue holiness, you are pursuing the image of God. You pursue righteousness, you're pursuing the image of God. You pursue goodness, true goodness, you're pursuing the image of God. All of God's laws that would teach us how to be righteous and holy and good, they're really instructing us how we are to be the image of God. 
who is himself righteous and holy and good. And maybe remember, some of God's commands make that point explicitly. They say things like, be holy as I am holy. Forgive as God in Christ has forgiven you. There are many like that. And, and so one pastor has said, rightly, that the imitation of God is the foundation of all ethics, of, of the standard of all rightness and wrongness. Now, that has some cash value for your life in any situation. It is right for you to ask yourself, in what ways should I imitate God in this situation? Not how can I just control the situation, not how can I try and guarantee a certain outcome, but how can I imitate God here in this and reflect His character for His delight in the display of His glory? Ephesians 5 says directly, be imitators of God, Ephesians 5.1. And then it goes on to tell us especially how we can do that. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So he loved you in making you his child. Christ loved you by giving himself for you, so you should be an imitator of God in this way. Walk in love. And again, Scripture, scripture if it teaches us that love fulfills all God's laws, that should tell you something about uh, the image of God. To love God with all the heart, soul, and strength first. To love one's neighbor as oneself. That sums up how we're to reflect his character and be his likeness. God is love. And, and here's a really profound angle on this that I don't want you to miss. The first and greatest commandment, that we would love God himself, that is the first and greatest instruction for how we are to live as the image of God. You are never more like God than when you are loving God. Glorifying, delighting in God. You're never reflecting the glory of God the Father more than when you are loving His Son, Jesus. You are never reflecting the character of God the Son more than when you are loving God His Father by the Spirit. The chief way you can reflect God's perfect character is to love and glorify and enjoy Him. That because that's what God does forever within the Trinity. This is the Father, Son, and Spirit who said, let us make man in our image. Uh, author Ed Welsh put it this way, people are most similar to God when he is the object of their affection. People should delight in God as he does in himself in the Trinity. That's the image that he wants us to show to the world. That's, what, that's how he wants especially us to show the world what he is like. A God of love and delight within himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. So many implications of this doctrine. Now, here, here's another one. We, we live in a day and age where people care very much and, and very self-consciously about the image that they project 
You know, people in previous generations had less opportunities to project different images about themselves. My dad was a blacksmith. I'm a blacksmith, and I'm going to wear, you know, the same burlap clothes that he did. But today, whether online or social media or amongst peer groups or colleagues at work or, you know, our infinite clothing options or our hobbies, uh, people give a lot of attention to what image they want to project about themselves. And and they may worry and, and scheme about their image. Well, think about how big of a difference it would make for you if instead of having your mind consumed with thinking, what image do I want to project about myself? You see where this is going? Instead, you would start asking yourself, what image about God do I want to project? Online, in my peer group, with my work, with my clothes, with my hobbies, in my family, in my neighborhood, etc., etc., etc. If you live uh, dominated by that question, that, that's when you're walking in sync with your nature as a human being. That's when you can walk more freely and with less of a limp spiritually. You were created in God's image. We were not made to create our own. We, we were made to reflect the light of His matchless glory, not, not to try and think of ways to, to shine around our, our own uniqueness, not in reference to Him. The God-centered truth about how God made us, it is so much better than the self-absorbed lie the world wants to sell us. And really, this is further proved by the other aspect of God's image in man found in Genesis 1. It's not just reflecting his character, but ruling his creation that God had in mind when making man in his image. Look again at verse 26 and see this. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And in some English Bibles render verse 26, let us make man in our image so that they will have dominion. Very tight connection between image bearing and Dominion exercising. Then after verse 27, celebrates in song the creation of man. Verse 28 brings out this dominion idea again. Look at verse 28. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. See, day six of creation was actually a coronation day. God made man as the crown of creation, and, and then he crowned man as rulers over his creation, as his image. And again, we think of Psalm 8 that Nathan read earlier. What is, David said, what is man that you are mindful of him, and that you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor Namely, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. Now, 
in one respect, this aspect of the image of God would have actually made a lot of sense to the people in the era and the place in the world that the book of Genesis was written, the ancient Near East. Ancient peoples around Israel, they did think of some people as being the image of God on earth. You know who? The king. Uh, For example, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, was described as a living statue of this or that God, even while Israel was enslaved there. In the ancient Near East, see, the, a, a king was the living embodiment of a God on earth. A king was a ruler for God. A king was a visible representation of the God of a people, like a living statue through whom the God ruled as his image. So we see that there were some traces of truth that had trickled down to these people. But, but the big shocker in Genesis... The big shocker about the whole truth was that it wasn't just one person, the king or Pharaoh, who was God's image and exalted representative ruler. All people were God's image. And so all people, male and female, were given dominion by God to rule over God's creation for him as kings and queens of earth, as as his vice regents. God crowned every single human being as his representative ruler. And the true God would rule over the earth through all of them. So in a biblical view of man then, you see we, we, don't, we don't treat people like garbage, we treat people more like royalty. Or at least something more like that because God intended that they would be, in some sense, every person, images of God given dominion to rule and reign on his behalf crowned with glory and honor. And, and man's dominion on earth, that, that reflects God's dominion over all things. Man was made to rule in ways that resemble God's rule. And one neat way that you see this is by looking at Genesis 1 and comparing God's work in creation, the first six days, and to the, the work that he called man to do on day six when he gave him dominion. So, so God created the heavens and the earth, and you remember how the earth was at first? It was formless and void. And you know what God did in the six days of creations? He formed it, what was formless, and he filled it, what was empty. He, he formed day and night, the sky, the sea, the dry land, and then he filled day and night with the light, and he filled sky, land, and the sea with creatures. And then God made man in his image, and gave him commission to rule the earth, and he told him to form and fill the earth, analogous to how God had done before. He told man, subdue the earth. Form it. Fill it. This is an echo of God's own work of creation before. God worked to the creator king. He, he brought about order and beauty and provisions and delights for man on earth and for the other living things on earth. And then God gave man dominion and called him to do the same, to bring about order and beauty and provisions and delights on the earth. Here's another very practical implication of the image of God in us. All our work that we do can fall under this aspect of the honor of God's image in us. When you mow the lawn, when you make a meal, when you parent, when you do your job, 
So, so long as your job is not inherently immoral and therefore actually does good to someone else in some sense when you do it. All of those things are expressions of God's rule over the earth and care for the world. So, so when we work and create and produce and clean and parent and govern and serve and just take care of our business, that all that resembles in small ways God's good lordship over all creation. That's part of God's image in us, our exercising dominion over his creation. So this isn't easy, but I hope you can catch really a vision for how this aspect of the image of God, it, it supercharges all of our work with meaning. Even things like household chores, they, they can be supercharged with incredible dignity and honor because it's part of exercising dominion over God's creation as his images, his ruling representatives. And if you will renew your mind in this way, then you can find joy in whatever you put your hand to, no matter how drab. You see its profound connection to the glory of how God made man. Now this aspect of God's image, ruling God's creation, it comes out in Genesis 2 as well. So turn the page, look at Genesis 2. Genesis 2 tells more about the creation of man in, in further depth. Look at 2 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in the Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight. And good for food, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was there. Now look down at verse 15. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it. See, God, God gave dominion to man in his garden. This is the same thing as chapter 1, just, just a more zoomed in angle. God, God planted the garden. He brought forth provisions and delights in it. And then he put man in it to do the same. Now you work and keep it. After God, like God, as God's image. Subdue the earth. Work and keep the garden. And, and as mankind began to fill the earth, they, they were supposed to, in a sense, extend the boundaries of Eden as God's representative rulers, and, and so make the whole face of the earth a place of wonderful productivity and, and beauty that, that, was, that was suitable for maximal enjoyment of fellowship with God and one another, just like the garden that God planted was. Now, this part of Genesis 2, here, here's another really important perspective on how man was to rule over God's earth as God's image. This charge in verse 15 that he gave Adam, work and keep. The original readers of Genesis would actually hear those commands and think, that sounds like the duties of priests. When you read Genesis in its larger context as, as part of the law of Moses, you see, especially in the original language, that Adam's call to work and keep is exactly 
what the Levitical priests were commanded to do in the tabernacle. In fact, these two commands are only joined here in Genesis 2.15 and in the commands for the Levitical priests. What, what they were, the tabernacle was the holy place where God's presence dwelt in the midst of Israel. All right, that's not just random. There are a lot of things in Genesis 2 and 3 that actually resonate with the way that the later tabernacle and temple are described in the Bible. And so we're supposed to, as people who know more of the Bible than just the first few words of it, we're supposed to, to, to see that the Garden of Eden is actually like a, a holy tabernacle space where God's holy presence uh, dwells among men where man can meet with God and serve God and offer him worship like priests would do in a tabernacle. And again, I want you to know that the historical context of the ancient Near East, that relates. The nations around Israel, you know what? They had temples too. And what did they put in their temples? Images of gods, false gods, to, to represent the supposed God's presence in that place and, and as an object through which they could seek God's blessing. Well, in Genesis 2, God planted a garden to be like a holy temple space on earth, and then he put his image in that temple, man, us. And he made man, us, to be the visible representation of his presence through whom God, God would bless that place. And God gave Adam then priest-like commands to carry out in this tabernacle-like garden. Now, that, that's some... Um, Those are, those are some deep waters, but I want you to know, I'm not, just, I'm not just telling you this to arm you with some random Bible trivia factoids. This relates to you and me, to understand God's intention in making man in his image. You need to see how, how Adam is crowned, not just as a king to rule for God, but, but as a priest. You know what kings do, they... They rule, they exercise dominion. Well, what do priests do? The rest of the Bible shows us the priest serves God in his presence. And they, they mediate God's presence and blessing to others. And they lead others in the worship of God. And they spread the knowledge of God to others. And, and they protect the holiness of the place where God's presence dwells. They, they keep the place sacred where man meets with God. And all that, all that matters for you. God made mankind as image bearers to rule over his creation in priestly ways. Meaning, however we uh, would exercise dominion on the earth, we are to do it all as holy service to God. All of it as worship to God. And, and all in the holy presence of God. And this, this great honored office is, is what we are restored to in Christ. To be, able to, to be able to rule over the earth as those who are mediating God's presence and blessing to the rest of creation. Now I hope you can see how this further charges all of our work, even mundane tasks, with the most really incredible dignity and, and purpose. That if God's spirit is in you because you're united to Christ... All your work on earth can be this kind of holy, priestly, worshipful service for God. As God's image in Christ, you can sweep the floor 
and file paperwork and build a fence as worship in the holy presence of God and as acts that spread blessing and the knowledge of God to His creation. It's amazing how God made us. Now, the next point on your outline, we will push to next week, the corruption of God's image. But I do want to say a couple of things before we close. I'm sorry, I just lied to you. More than a couple of things. A few things about this last point. We need to. The end goal of God's image in man. The great end goal is God giving us a share in the special relationship he has with his own son. God made man in his image, thus able to be lifted up alongside his son so we could call God our father together with his only begotten son. Where am I getting this? The book, well, the whole Bible, but starting in the book of Genesis. Turn to Genesis 5. It's a genealogy. This person's the son of that person and so on and so forth. You see here that Genesis explains God's image in man, not just in terms of reflection and rule, but also in terms of sonship. Genesis 5.1, this is the book of generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, Genesis 1.26, and named him Seth. You see that? When the Spirit says Seth was Adam's image and likeness because he was his son, it's teaching us how we should think about what it means for us to be God's image and likeness. It means God made us as his image to relate to us as sons. And, and that also would have made sense to ancient Near Eastern people. They thought of the king as the living statue of God because God had taken him as a son. The image of God in man points towards sonship. The son reflects the image of the father. The son, if they have a royal father, rules with him. God created man in his image so we could experience a father-son relationship with him. In fact, so we could experience the father-son relationship that has always existed in God. That's the end goal of God's image in man. So it's the end goal of God saving us in Christ. God unites us to Christ, not only so we can have our sins forgiven by his work on the cross, but also so we can gain a share in the son's own relationship with God his father. So, so God could treat us like brothers of his beloved son, who is his perfect image. Romans 8, 29, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. You hear that? That's the breathtaking end of 
God's image in man, that we would be adopted into Christ's eternal sonship, like brothers to him who call on God, Abba, Father, with him. Now especially, I hope you can see why we can say that there is no higher honor or blessing God could have given man than to make them in his image. Because there's no higher joy or honor that God could have given than to give us a share in the relationship of love that he has with his own son. The image of God is glorious that God would make us for this end. And Jesus came to pay for our sins so it could be realized in us. Jesus was the perfect image of God on earth. He was God's ultimate king, God's ultimate priest, God's true son. He rescued us from how we have wickedly not lived as God's image and glory, how we have mistreated others created in his image. And because he died for those things and he rose from the dead, those who trust in Christ are forgiven all the way and then raised up to be his true images, his priest kings, his beloved sons. And the scripture says all of that. If we had time, I could give you verses for all of those things, that that's what we become in Christ. But, but I want you to see this. God laid the groundwork for all of that to happen on page one of your Bible when he created man in his image. What is man? The truth about how God made you is better by a lot than any alternate explanation. It is so much better than any false identity the world might offer. If you would just come to Christ and receive his salvation and follow him and know the Father with him. God, thank you for making us in your image so we could be a kingdom of priests, so we could reflect your glory, especially so we could be your children. Behold what manner of love you have given unto us that we should be called the children of God. Thank you for making us in your image so we can be loved like that and called that. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.